Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. This is going to be a two-part series with a fascinating subject, transplants. Now, I'm sure all our listeners are aware that in the news recently, it was all the rage that a pig heart was transplanted into a human being in America. Being Jewish, that definitely sounds a bit odd. We're not allowed to eat pork. We're not allowed to eat pig at all. So from a halachic perspective, and if you could speak about transplants in general, how we view them. Fine. Thank you very much, Rabbi Mena, for uh, having me on your program again. Transplants, fascinating subject, very topical, very relevant, as you say. And I think the logical way to approach the subject is in two sections. The first is the question of transplanting organs from dead people, which is very commonly done today. And then, of course, there's the equally fascinating area of transplanting organs from living people. For example, a living person wishes to give a kidney, of which most people have two, to a relative or sometimes even to a stranger. That raises a whole different set of questions for the donor. Of course, the recipient in both cases is a living person whose life is being saved by the transplant. But the donor in the first case would be somebody who's, who's deceased. And in the second case, a totally different question of a person who's alive giving an organ. You also raise the very new and interesting question of neither, namely a pig, for example, an animal who is the donor, no, not a human being at all. What does that mean halachically? Well, perhaps let's begin with that, the question of animal organ donation. Where are we holding at the moment in the science, and what does that mean halachically? I think the easiest part of this question to deal with is the halachic aspect. And as you correctly said, we're not allowed to eat pork, pig products, etc. What does that mean for donations? This, fortunately, is a very easy question to answer, and that is that the prohibition of forbidden foods like pork, for example, is only with respect to eating. So there's no prohibition of having benefit from animal tissues or pork, for example, and therefore to transplant an organ into the body, which is not eaten in any way, there's no prohibition at all, not none whatsoever. And therefore, for example, today we use pig valves all the time. We use pig, we use uh, cow valves, transplanted into or implanted into the human heart. Absolutely no problem. There was a long time in the history of diabetes where the insulin produced that diabetics need was obtained from non-kosher animals, from pigs and other animals. There's no problem in Judaism at all using or implanting into the body unkosher material. Therefore, implanting a heart, for argument's sake, into the human being, there'd be no Jewish problem at all. Why is that, that eating is stricter than benefit in other ways? Well, I'm not sure it's stricter, but the Torah prohibits food that is forbidden. It just has no does not address at all the question of using unkosher material. There are some categories of objects and substances in Torah that one may have no benefit from. For example, let's say meat and milk, that is, that it's been prepared together or cooked together, or chametz on Pesach. There are things that one uh, would not be allowed to benefit from. But when it comes to unkosher material, the concept is totally limited to food. The second point is that uh, in order to save a life, you could eat unkosher food. 
So, for example, if a person were required to eat a pork product, and that were the only way to save their life, in fact, that would be a mitzvah. So, using an animal organ implanted into the body, and here we're not dealing with the question of cruelty to animals or causing them suffering or using animals. That's a whole whole other subject, and perhaps we can discuss that at some point as well, because indeed, in Judaism, it is forbidden to cause suffering to animals or use them in any cruel way. But putting that aside, the implanting into the body of animal tissues is not a question. About 25 or 30 years ago, I was honored to be on a panel here in London, was convened between the Royal Society and the Weizmann Institute, and the panel was headed by a famous heart surgeon by the name of Magdi Yakub. Professor Magdi Yakub is an ex-Egyptian heart surgeon working in London, very well known, and the panel was examining at the time the question of cloning or genetically modifying pig tissues so that they would be compatible with humans. Of course, it was a dream back then, and only this year it became a reality when a person survived for a number of weeks, I think about a month, with a pig heart which in fact is genetically modified. Why was I on the panel? Because exactly that question was raised. They wanted an Orthodox Jew on the panel to contribute the information about whether there would be a kashrut issue. I, in a little light-hearted fashion, I suggested that all they needed to do was modify the pigs so that they're kosher, and then they'd be okay, <laughs> but they didn't like my suggestion. But anyway, of course, I simply could have sent in an answer to the panel with a one-word answer, no. You know, there's no prohibition, but of course I wanted to be part of the panel, of so I made a long speech and ended it with the word no. <laughs> but be that as it may, there's no problem with transplanting animals into humans. The technical problem, of course, is that when you put a baboon heart, which has been tried, or a pig heart into a human, it's instantly rejected. In fact, the hyperacute rejection begins within six to eight hours. That's the problem. The major breakthrough that has just been made is that we can take pigs and program them genetically. We can alter their genes so that they're less discrepant with regard to humans. In other words, the reason the human body rejects animal tissue is because they're genetically distinct from us so that we mount an immune response against them. And of course, the holy grail has been to take an animal and leave it enough animal that it is an animal organ and yet modified genetically so that it's compatible with a human. What they did with this pig heart recently was, of course, they didn't get full compatibility, but they managed to get it close enough that the organ would not be rejected. Of course, the patient would need anti-rejection medications, but we do that for humans anyway because humans are not entirely compatible with each other. And this is done when the pig is still alive. Yes, indeed. So the pig is dealt with, manipulated genetically, there is another hope, of course, that we could actually grow animal organs, isolated organs. This has already been done in the initial stages. And of course, the hope beyond that is we could grow organs from your own stem cells. We wouldn't even need animals. And in fact, the very early work on that has already been done, which means theoretically we could take stem cells from a human being and grow them into a fully formed heart. That's been done with frog hearts and with uh, mouse hearts already to a very surprising degree. And it has been done with human ears and a human trachea. So there's uh, far from uh, science fiction that we could actually grow your own organs, in which case we wouldn't need to harm animals in any way, and we wouldn't need dead people. That would be a wonderful source, and of course there'd be total compatibility. So when it comes to the question of transplanting, by the way, when we talk about rejection, of course, that there's one case, one rare case in humans where rejection is not a problem, and that, of course, is when you transplant an organ from a twin to an identical twin since they share virtually their total genome, there's no rejection. In fact, you may find it interesting to know that the first transplant of a human kidney was done in 1953 or 1954. As it happens from one Jewish girl to her sister in Toronto, the doctor, if I'm not mistaken, went on to win a Nobel Prize. 
And since these two girls were identical twins, and of course back in 1950s there were no anti-rejection medications, so there was no way to do it between incompatible individuals. But since genetic twins share the same genetic pattern, he was able to transplant a kidney from one to the other. And the girl who received the kidney died last year. 1954, survived until the 2000s with a kidney from her sister. And of course, the sister lived for a long time as well because you can live quite well with only one kidney or almost always. And so that was an example. I'll give you another fascinating example. There's a well-known fertility surgeon in St. Louis, Missouri. I happen to actually have met him. His son actually is a religious Jew. He's a rabbi in Jerusalem. And this surgeon's name is Dr. Sheldon Zilber. He's a very well-known fertility surgeon. And a few years ago, he reported a series of cases in which he took identical twin women. In fact, he has five sets, patients, five sets of identical twin women. And these girls are unfortunate in that in each set of twins, one cannot have children and one can. One has what's known as primary ovarian failure. She has no eggs in her ovaries, but her sister does. What did Dr. Zilber do? He cut out a slice of ovarian tissue from the fertile twin containing eggs and transplanted it into the ovary of her identical twin sister. All five now have children. Wow. Now the question is, in fact, there was a sixth pair of twins in the same situation, and then he tried something even more radical. He actually cut out one of the whole ovaries of the fertile twin, and using microvascular connecting techniques, he implanted that ovary into the twin. She hasn't had children, but she started cycling hormonally, and almost certainly she'll become pregnant as well. And that only works because they're twins. Indeed, yes. So, so because these girls happen to be sets of identical twins, they're no anti-rejection medicines, which will be dangerous for pregnancies and cause many other issues. So, of course, in that rare circumstance, you could, in fact, by the way, the girl who received the ovarian transplant from her sister and now has children, okay, whose children are they? Do we judge them to be the children of the woman who gave birth to them, which is a normal maternal situation? Or do we reckon that they are children of the genetic donor, namely the egg donor, namely the sister? Now, these kids look a lot like their mother and their aunt, okay? Mm. And And not only that, of course, could equally well be products of either one. This is a well-known situation, not, of course, the ovarian transplant, but what is well-known is surrogacy, where, in fact, we take an egg from one woman and fertilize it and have another woman carry the pregnancy. This is very commonly done. There, of course, the question is, which mother is the mother? This has major consequences in terms of who the child may marry, who are the siblings, and if one mother's Jewish and one's not, very often, let's say, a Jewish woman might pay a non-Jewish woman to carry her pregnancy. Is the child then born a Jew, is the father a Kohen, is the child a Kohen? There are many, many questions. The consensus among most rabbinic authorities in the world today is that the egg donor mother, the DNA donor, is in fact the genuine mother. But Rabbi Yashiv was very clear that we cannot be sure about this. And ever since his day, it's been standard practice throughout the Orthodox world that we conduct ourselves with a conduct of doubt. In other words, we're not 100% sure who. And so we are suspicious, or rather we, uh, shall I say, we consider seriously both possibilities. So for example, today, if either one of those women is Jewish and one is not, we put the child through a tentative conversion. The London Bet Din today does not give a certificate of conversion. They simply give a certificate of what was done. So when the child grows up in 19, 20 years later, they can decide at that time, you know, was this a conversion which was necessary or one that was unnecessary? The person was Jewish anyway. Of course, it makes no difference to the person's Jewish status because you're Jewish whether you convert or whether you're born Jewish. Although it may have some other consequences like marrying Kohanim and so forth and so on. So 
that would be the situation. Incidentally, your, our listeners may find it interesting to know that the law in Israel today, secular Israel, is that when children are born from surrogacy like this, the law registers requires both mothers to be registered as the mother. And the child grows up with two legal mothers. And why would they do such a strange thing? The reason is, since the law is not sure who the real mother is, just like the rabbinic world is not, the law is concerned in Israel that no one marries a sibling. Like most Western countries, it is illegal in Israel to marry a sibling, for good reason, and of course we concur with that totally halachically. And since we are not sure who the siblings are, are they the siblings from the egg donor mother, or are they the siblings from the gestational mother, the one who gave birth to the child, it's not clear. If you define both mothers as the legal mother, you've automatically made it illegal to marry siblings from both families, which is a great solution. And the rabbinic authorities in Israel today are very happy with that solution. So those are some of the peculiarities of transplantation from a live donor to a live recipient, particularly with regard to twins. Can any organ theoretically be transplanted? Yes, that's a very, very good question. And that brings us, of course, to the whole array of modern technology. Yes. In the ideal circumstances, for example, of an identical twin, you could indeed take any organ and transplant it into the twin. Um, Oh, I was just about to take the words out of my mouth. There are organs that are more complicated. To date, a brain has not been transplanted. You probably read in the news about two months ago that a British team is now threatening to transplant a head. Head with a brain. <laughs> so, a yeah, what they will do, what they're intending to do, is take a patient who's terminally ill because he has widespread cancer in his body, but not in his brain, and take a deceased individual who's just recent, you know, died moments after death, whose body totally healthy, let's say someone with a head injury, and they will transplant the head onto the body. The problem with that will be, of course, it's totally feasible. And there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't be done. The bony connections and the vascular connections, the muscular, they could all be done. In fact, the technical challenges would be relatively minor. The problem would, of course, be that the spinal cord, we don't have a way to connect that, which means that to date, although amazing progress has been made in this field, today we don't have a way of connecting those spinal nerves, which means that the head would be transplanted onto a new body. The consciousness and awareness of the person would be the head and the brain. The person would wake up however paralyzed. In other words, they'd be connected to a body with a heartbeat and lungs and so forth and so on, so they would be alive. The breathing is not such a simple matter, of course, because it requires a brain to breathe, so that would have to be dealt with. The initial stage, of course, would be to have the person breathing by virtue of a machine, and the person would wake up from the operation without a body which is riddled with cancer, but paralyzed, perched on top, shall we say, of a healthy body, but out of contact with the body. They wouldn't have any feeling, and they wouldn't have any motor control of the body. The reason they're contemplating doing this is an interim step in learning how to do these things with the ultimate hope that we'd be able to connect the spinal column so that the person could actually be put onto a new body. But can one revive the dead in theory? Well, this is a real science fiction question, and our listeners may also find it interesting to know that the question of who you are is raised by this type of surgery. If you transplant a head or a brain from one person to another, are you the body that receives the brain? Are you the brain? And of course, the next question is, if you downloaded all your conscious awareness from a brain into another brain or an animal brain, who would be you? And of course, if you then transplanted, if you could download, shall we say, or upload all your brain functions into a machine, a very sophisticated computer, would that be you? And if you want to take the final step, if we beamed you up right from one set of biological 
materials to another on another planet or some other place on Earth, which in fact would be the real you? These are speculative and uh, fanciful questions, but the reason they've been raised by philosophers is because they help us to analyze philosophically the real question of who is you, what is really you. And if our listeners would like to take this further, there are many books on this. One I would recommend is a book by Professor Bernard Williams, who was the professor of philosophy at Cambridge until he died a couple of years ago. And his book is called Problems of the Self. And it is a very uh, readable analysis of what in fact makes you you. Is it your mind? Is it your brain? Do you need a body? Very interesting. The bottom line that most philosophers' conclusion they've come to is that to have a sense of identity and a sense of self, you indeed need not only a mind but also a body. And of course, Judaism would concur with that, although we say the body is only the vessel and the mind is the content. But nevertheless, this is deeply speculative and philosophical area, but our listeners are referred to As Orthodox Jews, we believe that we have a soul. We have a nefesh, and that's part of God. At the time of death, the soul leaves, and therefore the body just dies. Theoretically, if, let's say, the heart stops beating, one would get a heart transplant, the soul would come back. I mean, as, how, how would we grapple with that? Okay, you raised a fascinating question. So the leaving of the soul, as you put it, which is not complete leaving of the soul, we believe that the soul leaves the body, but not entirely. There's a very small element of soul called the Havladagarmi, which always remains with the body, just enough to reconnect at the time of the resurrection. And that's why a cemetery is such a special place. It's not just a material place. There is some awareness and consciousness of the people that are buried there. That's why we conduct ourselves in a particular way in a cemetery. We don't display our tzitzis, for example. We don't perform mitzvahs in front of the dead who can no longer perform mitzvahs. We address the dead. We make a blessing if we haven't been to a cemetery for more than a, a month. And we say, We speak to those who are buried. And of course, there's nothing sentimental or merely poetic or Shakespearean in addressing the dead in Judaism. It is a real thing. But yes, by and large, most of the soul, in fact, has left the body and will reconnect at the time of the resurrection. Now, your question is that if a person is in that state, and then they are resuscitated, revived, either by CPR resuscitation or by indeed transplanting a healthy heart into the body. Your question is, is that resurrection of the dead or not? And this is a serious question. Some of our great rabbis, like Ramosh Sternbuch, for example, have addressed this question. And the question becomes, if you have a person who has died, meaning no heartbeat, no breathing, etc., and then after half an hour of attempts to resuscitate them, you in fact succeed. Have you just saved a life or have you resurrected the dead? A more interesting question and a clearer question would be not where the person collapsed and you resuscitated them, but let's say you took out their heart during a transplant procedure and then five minutes later implanted a new heart. During the few minutes that the heart was out of the body, halakhically it would seem the person is clearly dead. Clearly. The fact that a machine is keeping some breathing functions going and pumping blood around the body, you're right, we would seemingly have a very clear definition of a person who is dead. If that is true, and, and I may add, the same question is raised when a person has open-heart surgery. Most surgery today is done by stopping the heart. There are, believe it or not, some heart operations like uh, bypasses that can be done by very skillful surgeons while the heart is beating, amazingly. But most surgery on the heart, outside the heart or inside the is done by stopping the heart. Now, if you stop the heart for half an hour or an hour during surgery and then you restart it again at the end of the operation, was the person dead when their heart was stopped and you were operating and you have just re revived the dead? Or were they a very ill person and you have saved a life? This question has, amazingly, has major halachic consequences, and I'll tell you some of them. For example, let's say you're doing a heart transplant, and you cut out the diseased heart, 
and you drop it in a bucket and then you walk over to the other side of the operating room and you take a healthy heart and you walk over and put it back into the chest. During those minutes when the heart was out of the body, if you reckon the person to be dead, okay, because there was no heart in the body and a person cannot live without a heart, and now you bring them to life when you implant the donor heart. If you say that you have revived the dead, namely the person was dead and you've now revived them, question number one, there's no obligation to revive the dead. There's no mitzvah to revive the dead. There's an absolute mitzvah to save a life, but to revive the dead, no mitzvah, which means that while the heart was out of the body, if you decided to go and have a coffee instead of continuing the operation, you'd actually be performing no sin. Secondly, if there's a coin in the operating room, he'd have to leave because the person's dead. Thirdly, his wife just became a widow. The moment you took that heart out of the body, his wife became a widow. Let's say during the 10 minutes that the heart was out of the body, she found herself conducting an intimate relationship with someone else. I mean, you, you may agree it's a little insensitive of her, but if she did, she'd not be culpable for adultery because she was a merry widow at that time. If her husband was a Cohen, then she wouldn't be able to remarry him. Well, that would be a divorcee, not a widow, right? She does. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So they, they were blah. So we'd say like this, but but where your comment is correct is that if you now bring the husband back to life, he'd have to remarry her mm. because they were she's a widow. Not only that, his children just inherited every penny, <laughs> but including a life insurance policy. So there are major, major consequences. If, however, you say that when the heart was out of the body, we, we judged that person to be desperately ill but alive, and we did not revive the dead, but we saved a life. All of those would be reversed. Yes, there's a commandment to do it. No, a Cohen would not have to leave the room. She's not a widow. They're still married. Uh, he's not penniless when he wakes up, etc. Most modern authorities, and Rav Schlenbuch among them, have agreed that we ought to judge people like that, namely people whose heart has been stopped during an operation, people who have no heart in their body during a transplant, or a person under resuscitative attempts like CPR who clearly meets the criteria for death because they have no spontaneous heartbeat, we should adjudicate, we should judge all those people to be not dead people being revived, but desperately ill people whose lives are being saved. And of course, that would eliminate all those weird questions that we ask. And in fact, that is how we rule today. And so, yes, when someone's undergoing a CPR attempt, absolutely, there's a desperate attempt to save life. If, of course, long enough has gone by and we fail, then, of course, we say the person has died. The only question that remains there is, let's say at exactly 12 noon, the person collapsed and their heart stopped. And uh, medics and uh, bystanders managed to get to them. And a 40-minute attempt was made to, let's say, revive them. And they had a, a maintained a circulation during that time artificially. And then it turned out to be a failure, which means they never regained life at all. What would be the moment of death? Would we judge it to be when the CPR stopped? Or would we judge it to be the moment when the heart, when they collapsed? In the usual circumstances, we date the time of death from the initial collapse. In other words, the person collapsed, there was no heartbeat, no breathing, and all attempts to revive them had no consequence at all. No heartbeat returned at any time. Then we would say this was a failed attempt to resuscitate a dead person, but death occurred. And this is very important because it may be, for example, a person who dies at midnight or just before midnight, there may be insurance policy that's dated at a certain date and five minutes uh, difference in time of death could make massive difference in terms of legal consequences, in terms of you know insurance. There could be all sorts of legal consequences which are very important to know the moment of death with precision in some cases. And just a yacht site too. Indeed. Absolutely, indeed, indeed, absolutely. Now, that wouldn't have life and death consequences, no, of course, but it, it, it would, would be very important. 
This has been a brief introduction, I would say. <laughs> we didn't really get to our full discussion of donors who are dead and donors who are alive. But I would say this is a working introduction to our discussions on transplants. Maybe in our next session we can talk about transplantation from dead donors, how we view that. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robert Kiva. And looking forward to continue in episode two, where I also would like to touch on the weird and wonderful stories of people who with let's say these open heart surgeries they seem to have seen lights and they seem to have had some sort of appearances from near their death experience. near death experiences if we could touch on that too sure thank you and as usual any comments questions suggestions can be sent to podcast at jlead.org.uk thank you for listening thank you rabbit tats mm-hmm.